1: Yes, it is, and welcome back, Thursday, December second, twenty twenty one. I am back. My producer Bill is back. He took uh, he took a, a day off yesterday. We're glad to have you back, Bill. Although we have an issue that came up. I I um I was at lunch yesterday with a guest host of this show, who told me how much he liked you and how when he came in, you said, if you don't like our bumper music, I can give you other bumper music. I said, that sounds like a firing offense. <laughs> you don't mess with the bumper music here, and I didn't use the word mess. In any event, Bill, welcome back, though you're on a short leash when it comes to this music situation. And even... Uh, Well, not to diminish anyone, but another great pleasure in my life is my dear friend. I call him my boss. He is my boss, Ryan Williams. He's been on the show before. He is the president of the Claremont Institute, who is in town shaking things up a little bit here today. And he is in studio. Ryan, welcome physically to the studio.
0: Thanks, Seth. You've been
1: here once before have, in the yeah. studio?
0: That reminded me of a, grouch- is it a Groucho Marx line? Probably. Them's my opinions. If you don't like them, I got heathers.
1: Yeah, those are my <laughs> principles. If you don't... Yeah. Principles, yeah, better. I think better. it's principles. Right. Those are my principles. A princi- good
0: malapropism to start the show.
1: But always. Yeah, well, get it out of the way. It's like when you're hosting a party, <laughs> yeah. put a, you know, spill on yourself to make everyone else feel comfortable. Anyway, Ryan, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the Claremont Institute and what it's up to maybe in the next segment. But just as this is opening, let's just cover a little bit of the landscape that's going on in the news. I'd love to get your take on it. Uh, You are a scholar of the courts. Uh, You're a scholar of constitutional law and, of course, American history and political philosophy all in one. The country um, uh, may go through some more convulsions as yesterday in front of the U.S. Supreme Court was debated uh, a case which may have the effect of overturning Roe versus Wade. It's a case, it's an interesting case, Roe versus Wade, because it's one of maybe three that is studied scrupulously in non law school environments, yeah. right? Uh, we know about it from high school, we know about it from college, and we know about it from any other graduate course we took, though not in law school. And funny enough, in law school, you don't actually read much about Roe versus Wade. But what was your sense of this? I mean, because the perversion of the Constitution is what we care about, obviously, among Many other things but it, it, it's, it's obviously the perversions of the constitution is is one of our chief concerns uh, what what's your thought about these kinds of these kinds of cases we get from the Supreme Court or these kinds of decisions that come down with rights that I think would be new or at least um, at least strange to the people who wrote our constitution
0: yeah well i think it's um the notion of it or the principle behind it has been around for the better part of a century. Uh, uh we're going to sound like a dead horse cause we always talk about progressivism when I'm here, but, um, no, it's, uh, it's, it's the sign of the replacement of our old constitution with what the progressives called the living constitution, which is to say it has to change with, with the times. Um, there's a gr- famous 1958 case, which was of all things about, uh, the eighth amendment. Uh, but it said, uh, it's something about the um, principles or or uh, uh, items of justice of a changing and maturing society. Right. Uh, a case called, called Trop v. Dulles. Uh, I'm butchering the quote. It doesn't matter. That's p- kind of in the sense of liberal jurisprudence, which is to say they're they're kind of at the head or at the vanguard of the evolution of rights. And uh, rights are always changing because human nature is changing. Our desires are changing. Uh, part of the progressive transformation of, of really thinking and politics, let alone America, was to base rights in not in reason but in what we feel or what we feel collectively, that is, popular will. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that transformation, it makes perfect sense to have rights evolve all the time. And thus the Constitution is kind of a vehicle you just have to make up from, whence, from wh- where the new rights come. But the new rights must come.
1: Yes, and the how doesn't seem to matter because the founders understood, in their enlightened belief, if I may paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, that there were ways we could amend the Constitution. Sure. Nowhere did we think we would invent amendments by 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 diktat or by fiat or by ipsy dixit in a Supreme Court decision. No. But that is what we have been doing. Is this the tension? Is this is this the really the tension? Progressivism versus I, what, what's the opposite of progressivism? Constitutionalism? I don't know, American what would you call the opposite? Yeah, constitutionalism. Or, is constitutionalism. Fine. Is this the debate between Woodrow Wilson in a way and Calvin Coolidge in a way? Woodrow Wilson sure. gave these speeches, right, about the declaration and the founding generation was good for their time, but it's up to yeah. every succeeding generation right. to define it for themselves. Yeah. Whereas Calvin Coolidge was giving speeches, particularly his July 4th um, anniversary speech, right, where he says these things are settled. These yeah. things are final, right?
0: Yeah, uh, Coolidge was making the case for natural right without an S on it, that is to say trans-historical justice that doesn't change really because human nature doesn't change all that much. I mean, maybe it changes a little bit. You talk to a evolutionary biologist over you know fifty thousand years, but really in all of advanced civilized modernity, you know we've always had the same passions, same temptations. We fall into the same pitfalls. The problems of government are uh, are similar. Um, uh, so yeah, and then w- Wilson was really making the case for. Uh, historically contingent rights and thus historically contingent forms of government.
1: And that's why we can create, I suppose, via the Supreme court rights based on things that they even admit are not in the constitution. They call them penumbras and emanations, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's uh, that's right. Penumbras and emanations of the first, fourth, eighth. I forget all the stuff yeah. from, from no, Griswold. That's right v. right from the
1: Griswold, the old Griswold yeah. case. Uh,
0: yeah, that's right. And, and um, our dear, dearly departed friend Mike Yulman mm-hmm. gave a Salvatory speech when we gave him the Salvatore Prize uh, the year before he died, actually. So it was 2018. And uh, it was called, we're going to repost it at the American Mind, AmericanMind.org. But he had a pretty trenchant uh, commentary on Kavanaugh. And he said, uh, the, the reason the the reason the reason left freaked out so much about Kavanaugh is because there was this worry that he'd be the fifth vote to overturn Roe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Yulman said that, that Abortion rights had really become the Nicene Creed of modern liberalism. And oh, so okay. to attack that was really a, an assault on their religion. And I think that's pretty apt. The,
1: it, there's no other case that has taken that on, it, it, that 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 kind of that kind of importance right. on that I can think of. There's no other what they now call super-duper precedent like that, not even Brown versus Board. I not guess, not I, even.
0: I guess if you somehow started making the argument that we need to overturn – or there was real momentum to overturn Obergefell. Maybe, oh, OK. You know – um so, you know, gay marriage might be mm-hmm. one, but that, that ever for whatever reason, it, it, uh, it and probably because of of 50 years of liberalism post Roe, it didn't really have the same divisive cultural. Effect
1: well, that's how Roe. you can change a country. Right. This is why, you know, I love the work of the Claremont Institute so much. You, you can change a country through education or at least through our modes of education. When I give speeches, people say how did we get here right how do you how do you wake up and open a paper in a country you no longer recognize well for over a generation we have graduated eight million students a year high school and college combined 80 percent of whom are steeped in socialist doctrine right the receipts are in for that isn't that where it comes from
0: uh yeah in
1: part at least in large part
0: yeah it's it's um that's right it started at the elite universities about 100 years ago and it's uh has trickled down, uh, especially through. I mean, the real vehicles of all this, especially in K through twelve, are the education schools. So the Ed D, which Doctor Joe Biden has an Ed D.
1: That's right.
0: Um, I mean, all the education schools in the country should probably be blown up, not literally.
1: But, yeah,
0: uh, <laughs> I don't advocate. You Biden,
1: have so. your troubles. Don't make your problems my <laughs> problems, Ryan. They Williams. should be. They should. Be,
0: <laughs> they should be defunded and and abolished. There you uh, go. Because they, um, they're just. uh, there I like to joke that the you know, the Ivies and the top liberal arts colleges are madrasas of anti Americanism. Sure. And the ed schools are are the basically the source of the corruption of your elementary school children.
1: Well that's right. And what we have found is they're pretty much up to their necks in it in elementary school. I mean God yeah. bless the Loudoun County parents and who who you know, woke us up right. and people were finding, holy smokes, it's not just Loudoun County, it's Scottsdale, it's Paradise Valley, it's Claremont, it's everywhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Critical race theory, whatever you want to call it, critical race theory. Remember, uh, CRT was is being taught. It's uh, part of the left's whitewashing to say it's not being taught. Uh, you can find pretty quick evidence of it being taught everywhere and them saying it's being taught uh, but before that, it was Nicole Hannah-Jones and her 1619 right. curriculum project across 4,000 schools across the country.
1: And more now. Yeah. I want, and, and now they just put out a new textbook on it. But uh, on the other side of this break, break, when we come back from the break, I, I do want to talk to you a little bit about critical race theory because the Claremont, as per usual, was ahead of the game on this when you started your project. It was about two years ago we started talking about this, maybe even longer on multiculturalism and yeah. all that. Can we? Tie that all together when we come back. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Ryan Williams from the Claremont Institute, the president of the Claremont Institute. C-L-A-R-E-M-O-N-T is how Claremont is spelled. Claremont, no I, Claremont.org. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Ryan Williams, president of the Claremont Institute, is our guest in studio. Delighted to have him visiting from uh, Southern California. It's different here, isn't it? It is. You noticed that. Yeah. Every time I get visitors from California, they say, oh, it's different. Well, I, really? No I, masks? Well, I, <laughs> I,
0: I ignore the mask mandate everywhere in California. Do well, I'm, I'm far enough east in L.A. County on the very edge that, I mean, they put up with it. No one really gives me. Uh, but no, here I, you know, some people are wearing masks, but- most people behind the counter aren't.
1: I'm just presuming they're sick. And there are no signs I'm either. presuming they're sick. I mean, that was the point of the mask, right? To pre- I, that's Protect why others. I don't wear one. I'm not sick. Yeah, I'm assuming the people right. walking around wearing masks are sick, and they want me to know that. They yeah. want to be walking billboards of their own. Of, of their own. Yeah, mask. the perfect
0: example of this in California was Kevin, uh, I forget his last name, but the Jay and Silent Bob guy who had a post, of a picture of him. He's like, hiked Runyon Canyon for the first time in, in a
1: month, and he had two masks yeah, on. Of course. Yes. Of course. yes. Well- you could outdoors. You yeah. could theoretically justify that as training for other climates. Right, he's restricting. In a high right, right, and so, uh, oxygen deprivation <laughs> because he's wanting to do K one or One-tacking, something. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Ryan, before we went to break, we were just talking a little bit about critical race theory. There is an interesting thing about this: is 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 its teachers, its proponents, its um, its authors and archiviers tell us that it doesn't exist in the elementary schools or the secondary schools. It's it's an abstruse legal theory that's only found in law schools. Uh, and I know an awful lot about it because I took those law school courses and I've worked in the elementary and secondary schools. But it seems a little bit like some schools saying, well, we don't do creationism here. What we teach instead is that there was this void and uh, God created the earth out of it, and after six days, um, thought it was all good. But we don't teach creationism here, right? Yeah, it's something along those lines, yeah, isn't
0: it? That's right. No, the they've they're kind of abandoning this now because it's so ridiculous. And you can quote, you can quote, there's video of like conferences and yeah. school board meetings where the most, like, yeah, we <laughs> teach critical race yes. theory. But the old line was, Oh, critical race theory, it's just a it's just a it's an interpretive tool used in law school to show how the law is biased against blah, et cetera, et cetera. It's not even quite correct. It's critical legal studies. That's right. That's how it was started. Ones. It was critical yeah. legal studies. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it's all just it's, – uh, it's a deflection.
1: But you guys were on to the problems inherent here early on when you started a campaign against what I think you called one of our greatest threats, which was the multiculture—the attitude toward multiculturalism.
0: Multiculturalism, yeah. yeah, and wh- by that we meant, you know, I've, I've laid this out. In an essay form, uh, but we should be clear: not the existence of many cultures in America right. or ethnicities or whatever, but rather the ism part—the ideology right. of multiculturalism—which is not new. It was with us. I mean, plenty of conservatives wrote against it in the in the '90s, um, but it was—it's sort of been brought back with a vengeance with the rise of of racialist charlatans like Robin DiAngelo and Ibram Kendi and and all the rest. And it basically—the gist of it is: uh, we don't—we want to—we need to abandon equality before the law. We need to abandon colorblindness. Uh, meritocracy and all the rest and, uh, and really approach the law and approach the dispensation of honors, uh, resources and uh, positions and jobs uh, on the basis of this evolving and moving target of the oppressors and the oppressed. And so um, it becomes a really a, a social credit system based on the f- sins of your ancestors or your wrong think or your wrong skin color or whatever else.
1: Well, yes. And and doesn't it also come to you, as it does to me, with some degree of – really, I hate to be afraid of anything, but some degree of fear. Ibrahim Kendi, you mentioned him at Boston University. He has a piece in The Current Atlantic talking about – not white people that he 's worried about, but white ideology yeah and does does it not give you some kind of fear i the The way I put it is i you know i I just kind of thought that kind of thinking went out with nuremberg I, I guess it didn't <laughs> that race determines thought in this country
0: uh, well, you I mean you hit on their their slick distinction because they don 't quite want to be associated with old school racialism. Uh, is, yeah, it's no, it's not that we're against white people. It's we're against whiteness, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's uh, whiteness is somehow this ideology that that has permeated Western civilization since its start, which leads to the oppression of non-whites and this whole superstructure, very subtle uh, these days, rather than overt, hence the term systemic racism, rather than overt racism, which somehow disadvantages groups, and that's why we see different group outcomes. The only explanation in their view for different group outcomes is somehow some malicious... Underlying
1: system, right? Which, 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 none of us can ever find or seem to locate. I mean, the only the only distinctions I'm seeing by race are actually coming from the Robin D'Angelos and Ibram Kendi's at this point, point. and this notion of whiteness or this notion of 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 any form of pigment, ethnicity, nationality, you name it, that predicts or serves as the basis of thought. I mean. The way I I put it is I I have much more in common, as I presume you do, culturally, intellectually and every other way with someone um, like, I don't know, uh, well, your neighbor, Larry Elder, than either of us do with Chuck Schumer. Yeah,
0: my favorite. Yeah, it's really a state of mind. Whiteness is a state of mind and and a state of politics. I mean, we saw this long ago with Clarence Thomas and others. Right. Uh, My favorite was the root, this sort of activist left wing. Um, sort of black activist website, they once had a headline in recent years, last couple years, um, straight black men are the white people of black people.
1: oh ah, Yeah. Okay.
0: So there's even a hierarchy of privilege and...
1: And that's how Larry Elder within, becomes the, white, the so, black face of white supremacy. That's correct. Yeah, uh, that's correct. Ah.
0: So it's more about your ideology and your disposition towards the current progressive narrative and trends that make you either white or not. And there's also the term white adjacent. So Asia, <laughs> Asians, right, because because they have good group outcomes, uh, really can't be in a press class. They're white adjacent. It,
1: yeah. d- are Jews white adjacent? Yeah, you are now. T- Jews are white adjacent. You now.
0: weren't for a long time, but now you are.
1: I had a friend who was on a conference call uh, with a bunch of uh, people in. A, uh, he was doing a business venture with, and it was their first call. None of them had met because it was during COVID. And they were having a, con- a get-to-know-you conversation, go around the room. And the moderator said, I'd like us all to talk about our um, our white privilege. <laughs> and a friend of mine said, I, I can talk to you about it, I suppose, but I don't know the privilege part. I never met my grandfather, and my mom and his wife had f- tattoos on their arms that they did not ask for. Right. Yeah. Uh, that, that would be your, your Jewish white privileged adjacent i suppose yeah and the
0: reason being you know uh jews in america are are and all over are pretty successful so they don't have this group group uh, debilitating you know they don't have this group difference on the negative side so thus they must somehow partake of whiteness i got cuz the only thing that brings advantage and better outcomes is this phantom called whiteness
1: you um you uh you you, you, you did a really good job ryan and and your friends at Hillsdale College, along with the scholars at Claremont, and trying to arrest some of this nonsense you draw, you you spoke about the sixteen nineteen project with the seventeen seventy six commission mm-hmm. and it's gotten um, it's gotten a lot of criticism from all the right people but If I could just keep you for a couple more minutes after this break, I'd love you to just say, because you were so intimately involved in it, just say a few words on what the import of the 1776 Commission and its report was. And the real interesting thing to me, which was the unprecedented fact that the sub, a subsequent uh, administration, the Biden administration, took it off all the, government web ser- uh, all the government servers, web servers. It was a government document, yeah. and um, I've never seen anything like that. Can we talk a little bit about that on the other of side? Of course. And then we'll let you uh, mosey on over to your next crisis. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Ryan Williams. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Ryan Williams is our guest. He's the president of the Claremont Institute, which has some fabulous publications. Of course, many of you know the quarterly Claremont Review of Books. You can get that at Claremont.org, C-L-A-R-E-M-O-N-T.org. That will easily take you there. Also, the American Mind, right?
0: Yeah, AmericanMind.org. And if you want to go straight to the magazine, it's ClaremontReviewBooks.com.
1: ClaremontReviewOfBooks.com. Yeah. Or as uh, a friend of mine (laughs) says, that big smart thing. (laughs) Big smart thing, Ryan. You were uh, you were very much a part of the 1776 Commission uh, report that uh, came out in the last days of the Trump administration, which was a response to the 16 in in part a response to the 1619 project. Uh, it got immediately, of course, denounced uh, because it actually let, it spoke about uh, how how would you, it, it tried to correct the record about faulty American history, yeah. and. And it had a dose of uh, reasoning why you should actually love this country. Right. It was on the first day of the Biden administration, wiped off, disappeared memory hold from all the government servers. I've never seen a government report suffer that kind of fate before. I think it was unprecedented. But what were you guys trying to do with the 1776 commission? Yeah,
0: I should, um, I should clarify just a bit. My, my colleague Charles Kessler was on the commission. Okay. Uh, but yeah, the spirit of the thing is very much in line with Hillsdale and Claremont's projects. And the executive director of it was Matthew Spalding, who runs the the uh, Hillsdale DC operation. Uh, yeah, it was trying to correct the record. I mean, after a year, uh, well, more than a year, but at high pitch, a year's worth of of uh, you know, America is racist. America was really founded in sixteen nineteen. America is built on slavery. It just tried to go through what all of us had learned at these various institutions, which is, of course, the, the problem of slavery existed. Uh, but in principle, the founding was always against it. I mean, you 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 couldn't really find any major founding fathers who thought, yes, slavery is in conformity with the laws of nature and nature's God. It's a good thing. Rah, rah, rah. And yes, we should build our, um, our slave empire on this, on human bondage. That was never the argument. Uh, they had it. They had to deal with it. They made compromises with it to, to get the Constitution that they thought would eventually uh, pu- uh, have sufficient power to eradicate it or put it on the course of extinction. They were wrong about that, of course, and a civil war resulted. But it was so that, that sort of major thing that's now taught across the land in university and K through 12 that uh, America is racist, xenophobic, sexist, homophobic, etc. Uh, it tried to be a bit of a Ballast or counter narrative to that, among other things, and also to um, show people uh, through primary sources and through the arc of um, American history how you ought to understand your country and why you should ha- find plenty of reasons to like it and love it.
1: Are you Are you worried about Are you wor- It's It's all. The obvious answer is yes. I'd like to know what the degree is. Uh, but are you worried about? the effort to censor that very point of view. In other words, censor actual American history. I mean uh, the the best t shirt I've seen all year is um make George Orwell fiction again. You seen that one?
0: <laughs> no I haven't that's pretty good. Uh yeah we're we're in a real ideological war right now and language is very much uh I mean language is the tool of ideology. Um and there's a it's uh my colleague Arthur Millick has written about this in terms of hate speech. I mean we still don't really have hate speech laws in America we have hate crime laws which are their own problem but hate speech it's really that's the forward leaning frontier of of the prohibition of certain ideas through the prohibition of certain t- types of speech and you see it in you see it in western europe uh luckily we don't have it here yet but it's that's really the nose under the tent for a totalitarian speech code uh it'll start soft totalitarian but it'll get harder and so that's um it's one thing people ought to watch for and it's it works in the sense of they uh, they make the what you would think would be a common sense or anodyne argument that surely you shouldn't go around insulting people mm-hmm. or make or demeaning them, mm-hmm. uh, but the insulting or demeaning gets defined by whoever is insulted or demeaned, and really certain groups are allowed to say they're insulted or demeaned and it's a problem. Others are not. Namely, we're back to the oppressed and oppressors now, and thus the um, the arbiter of what you can and can't say is whatever favored group happens to be
1: first person to claim that that's offense
0: right. that. or or the favored group of the
1: regime yeah. or groups that's yeah. right which 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 leads us into a a really odd territory because i i mean this is why i do invoke 1984 and george well orwell all the time because it it's 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 become pretty clear that you can go k through 12 and never at this point in our lives and never get an education, never get a lesson, never get a class, never get a textbook, never get a reading assignment, that actually shows that the founding of this country was a good thing. Mm-hmm. You can do that now. Couldn't do that when I was a kid. Yeah. It's more pervasive now than ever. Oh, yeah. It was nowhere to be found when I was a kid. The country can change that fast. Reagan warned a generation. It just oh, yeah. takes one Cultural generation.
0: revolutions tend to uh, have this sort of accelerating That's pace right. to them.
1: Yeah. That's right. They start slow and then they move fast. Well, I know you have a meeting to go to, Ryan, but I'll have you back in the uh, studio a little later after uh, after your meeting. or we'll come back. I want to pick up on some of your thoughts on uh, – What's going on with uh, America, culture, and the coronavirus? Excellent. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Ryan Williams. Again, the Claremont Institute. Claremont.org, Claremont Review of Books.com, and the American Mind.org. American Mind.org. American Thanks, Mind.org. No article in front of it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leipson Show. Uh, on this, uh, something I've been wanting to talk about for uh, days, and, and it just, I don't know what happened. Things got in the way. But on this Omicron variant, the latest news is we now have three patients in the United States that have it. I think I've got California, uh, Colorado, and Minnesota, all evidently doing just fine. Not To me, the most important point, I hope everyone does fine. The most important point is I still can't connect the lines. There's a there's a there's a parallelism that is broken by this administration because they're telling you uh, the best way to prevent Omicron is to make sure you are vaccinated and that you get the booster if you're eligible. All three. All three of these patients, call them patient 0, patient 1, and patient 2 if you want, all three fully vaccinated, and uh, the latest story I read on uh, one of them, and I don't remember if it was the Colorado or the Minnesota person, but not only vaccinated but boosted. Uh, so, so we're at this odd point where I, you, you keep hearing me talk about this, but, but I, I, I just don't know a better analogy of C.S. Lewis is when he talks about in the abolition of man that we are at we have arrived at this point in our fashion of intellect that when there is a flood we seem to want to reach for the fire hoses we're not doing what we need to for the emergency that has been declared in fact we're doing all the wrong things that might in fact just make it worse why do i say make it worse this happens with a lot of public policy i've discussed this in regard to the opioid crisis a lot. But when you are focused on doing the wrong thing and yet proclaiming it is the right thing, you have taken not only your eye off the real problem, you will never solve the problem. You think you are solving the problem. You're not. You're working on the wrong thing. You're working on the wrong thing, and thus the problem lives on and on, and indeed grows on and on. I tweeted this out last night. I I feel as if I'm living in a world where this what I tweeted just doesn't exist, simply doesn't exist. The head of the South African Medical Association, Dr. Angelique Coetzee, is the person who alerted the world to the Omicron uh, variant of the virus, the Omicron variant of the virus. She is the one who alerted the world. She had an op-ed. She had an op-ed now three days old. How many of you have heard it? How many of you have heard about it? How many of you have seen it? Maybe maybe one way to deal with this is go to my Twitter account and, and just retweet it if you can and if you're interested. But let me read it to you in full. I, I don't even know if it exists in the White House anymore. As chair of the South African Medical Association and general practitioner of 33 years standing... I've seen a lot over my medical career, but nothing has prepared me for the extraordinarily, extraordinary global reaction that met my announcement this week that I had seen a young man in my surgery who had a case of COVID that turned out to be the Omicron variant. This version of the virus had been circulating in South Africa for some time, having been previously identified in Botswana. But given my public face role by announcing its presence in my own patient, I unwittingly brought it to global attention. Quite simply, I have been stunned at the response, and especially from Britain. And let me be clear, nothing I have seen about this new variant warrants the extreme action governments are taking in response to it. No one here in South Africa is known to have been hospitalized with the Omicron variant, nor is anyone here believed to have fallen Seriously ill with it. Yet other nations in Europe have reacted with heavy travel restrictions on flights from across southern Africa, as well as imposing tighter rules at home on mask wearing, fines, and extended quarantines. This was, of course, a day before the United States went in this direction. So (laughs) you can tell that no one has read it or no one cared about what she wrote. Let me uh, continue. The simple truth is. We don't know yet anywhere near enough about Omicron to make such judgments or to impose such policies. In South Africa, we've retained a sense of perspective. We've had no new regulations or talk of lockdowns because we're actually waiting to see what any of this really means. Again, remember, those that have been hit with it, not hospitalized, certainly not dead, not seriously ill. We've also, she said, become accustomed here to new COVID variants emerging. So when our scientists confirmed the discovery of yet another, nobody here made a big deal of it. Many people didn't even notice. But the global picture started to change after I spoke about it. Even as our scientists tried to point out the huge gaps in the world's knowledge about this variant, European nations immediately and unilaterally banned travel from this part of the world. Add the United States now as well. Our government was understandably angered by this, pointing out that science should be applauded, not punished. How about that? Science should be applauded, not punished. If, as some evidence suggests, Omicron turns out to be a fast-spreading virus with mostly mild symptoms for the majority of the people who catch it, that would be a useful step on the road to herd immunity. Ah, she said the words you're not allowed to say here. That's why people in America haven't heard of this op-ed. That's why people haven't read her in the Daily Mail. She said it would be a useful step on the road to herd immunity. She goes on, we'll learn in the next two weeks if that's the case. The worst situation would be, of course, a fast-spreading virus with severe infections. But that's not what we're dealing with. Here in South Africa, what I and my GP colleagues are seeing doesn't in any way warrant the knee-jerk reaction we're seeing. For one thing, we're not treating patients who are severely ill. Take my first Omicron case, the young man I mentioned earlier. It didn't occur to him that he had COVID. He thought he had too much sun after working outside. After he tested positive, so did his wife and four-month-old baby. So far, the patients who've tested positive here have been mainly young men, a mixture of vaccinated and unvaccinated. Only yesterday, I saw five more patients who had tested positive for the new variant, variant, All very mild illnesses. So at the moment, I'm afraid it seems to me that the countries like Great Britain are merely hyping up the alarm about this variant unnecessarily. Given that the U.S. has done everything Great Britain is doing, you might as well just say, I'm afraid it seems to me that countries like the United States are merely hyping up the alarm about this variant unnecessarily. Yes, she does write the picture one day may look different. I have yet to see older unvaccinated people infected with the new variant, for example, and they might well present with a more severe form of the disease. But the reality is that COVID is something we will have to learn to live with. Look after yourself, get your vaccines, but please don't panic. And that goes for governments as well. Boy, it is easy to put a country into panic. It's also easy to get a country to overreact. It's particularly easy to get a democracy to overreact. And boy, all you have to do is just use a little fear and panic. Just a little bit of fear and panic. Some people are saying this is about really the midterms. Let me say something about that when we come back. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. What is this animating... Uh, effort movement feature of the uh, panic that it is so easy to put Americans into first of all I'm not convinced that the omicron is uh, scare and hype is about the midterms and the reason i'm not i'd love your thoughts on this are twofold. One is other countries are doing it too uh, and and i am I'm beginning to believe that there is a growing fatigue with it that is not going to win majorities or supermajorities based on panic and fear. To the left, there is a vested interest in making Western society seem like it's failed. There is an effort to make it seem like America is a sick country on any number of levels. Actually, the coronavirus, the physical sickness, illness, is only the last version of all the other kinds of sicknesses they have tried to foist on our culture. There was the famous 60s song by Barry Maguire, Eve of Destruction. We're always on the eve of destruction. In the 1970s, the popular fear was that millions were to die from the population bomb. Millions more were to die in the nuclear winter of the 1980s brought on by Ronald Reagan. And of course, as you well know from 16-year-olds in other countries, global warming and the ecosystem is destroying us before our very eyes. Um, This effort, this investment in our failure, is worse than cynicism. It's an effort to take the healthy and make it ill. It's the effort to take the good and make it bad. It's yet one more intellectual effort. And sociological as well as psychop, psychological operation effort to make America a down market commodity. Not a success, if you will. Not something that should be great or was ever great. Remember what the recently deposed governor of New York said the man who was supposed to run for president in 2024, Andrew Cuomo. America was never. Really, that great. Turns out, turns out, the country is a lot greater than the people who have been continually telling us that we aren't. Have you noticed that? They should look in the mirror and perhaps speak for themselves. America, to me, was once great, is still great. And if it hews to its founding ethics and the best of its people, As Aristotle said, man at his best is the best of creatures, but man divorced from justice is the worst of creatures. If we hew to our founding principles, we will still be the greatest thing that ever happened to the world. I know it angers the left to say that. I really don't care. They're the ones who are wrong. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back.